Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Money Bus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the lower leagues and the COVID crisis. Now, without fans, without paying spectators, without games, a whole swathe of clubs from the football league, from the conference, and the all the way down the the English football pyramid are struggling. And there's a sense of panic, there's a sense of not knowing when the fans will be back, not knowing you know, whether the clubs will go under, whether leagues will go under. And while there's a sense that people know that it's important and they want to help, I think especially amongst football administrators, the FA, is there some sense that this is they're going to utilise this as a good crisis, that there's so many elements of the, the lower leagues that are inefficient and not working and actually for the the betterment of English football will now use this financial crisis to re reformat it in other words it'll be more like the the continent where you'll have b teams and so the, the the end benefit will be there'll be lots of young players getting experience in the lower leagues and that will then benefit the the, the English national team and so once you've then got added in some elements of you know, a little bit of trickle down. And so basically the only way that you'll be able to get money from the Premier League and the Championship to kind of fund the rest of the, the Football League is if you basically give them something in, in, in return. So if you basically give up you know, your independence and you become in some ways almost like a sort of a minor league franchise. And I think that was just fundamentally wrong i don't think it it you don't those people don't really understand what the football league means and what the clubs mean and what the stadiums mean so for this podcast i'm really going to talk about two stadiums that were just hugely important to me being a sports fan and that's white hart lane which has been you know the original white hart lane that's been knocked down and the new Tottenham Hotspur stadium and underhill the um former home of Barnet FC. Now, I was born in Barnet. It's a, effectively, it's the southernmost bit of uh, Hertfordshire. So effectively, it's almost sort of like a, a Venn diagram. It's just about North London and it's just about Hertfordshire. It's kind of, Barnet is just that kind of little dot. It's It's got a tube station. So it is, you know, North, it is London, but it's nowhere near, it's, you know, at least 40 minutes on the tube before you're into sort of central London, you know, Tottenham Court Road, Leicester Square, so on and so forth. And the first question that you have to ask is, why do stadiums matter to us as sports fans? And it's the magical symbiosis between what the ground gives us it's a fixed point you know it's anchored in history it's past present and future you know it's the the memories the friendships the rituals the agony and the ecstasy all into one and that's what the stadium gives us it's somewhere that you always know how to get to you know how far it is a walk from the station. You know where the parking is. You know the best place to get a pint. You have your seat. You have your section. You have the people that you see every week. You have the train that you get to get to the stadium. And so what the fan gives the stadium is life. You know, a personality. A shared collective and a meaning. 
you can have one without the other, but never for long, without it ending badly. You, know, you can, you know, so Tottenham played at Wembley for a short period of, you know, for the you know, best part of 18 months. And the club survived, it still continued to be successful, but there was issues. Eventually the, the attendances started to absolutely crater. People were just sick of going to Wembley. It wasn't so much that it was that far away from Tottenham. It wasn't as if it was that difficult to get to. It was just not home. You know, you can, you know, with the current crisis where, you know, football war is coming back, but in empty stadiums. The games are carrying on, the leagues are carrying on. But eventually, you know, we, that's why they're called ghost games. There's just something not quite right about and I think the best way of explaining this kind of attachment to, to home is really the story of Wimbledon and Plough Lane set against the sort of story of Charlton and the Valley. Now, with Wimbledon, it's a fantastic story. And if I, I, I really wish someone could turn it into a movie. The idea of this Southern League club that is non-league, that has no... Yeah, no major footballing history plays in this very small ground called Plough Lane, just outside of you know, the centre part of Wimbledon. And no one would have ever imagined that they would win the FA Cup, that they would spend you know, 10 years plus in, in the Premier League. And that they would go you know, promotion after promotion from the 70s to the early 80s when they were finally into the Division 1. Just no one could have imagined it. It just wasn't likely. What was Wimbledon known for in sporting terms? The tennis. They were just not known for football. And so this fantastic, meteoric, you know, sort of Cinderella rise to the big time that culminates in the 1988 FA Cup final. It's Wimbledon, the crazy gang, you know, known for their kind of, you know, rough tactics, toughness, just battling qualities up against Liverpool, who'd been just the team of the 70s, the team of the 80s, and Wimbledon win 2-0. You know, Dave Besant saves a penalty. It's just a wonderful story. And just, I've had, I know people that live in Wimbledon, and they said that that day, just when everyone went back to Wimbledon, was just insane. Just the, the celebration, the explosion of happiness. But the, the intrinsic problem always was was that the Plough Lane was a very small, very sort of fairly dilapidated ground. It was it was a lower league ground that was never no one had any intention that it would ever need to be hosting Division One football, and so there wasn't really an, a a way for them to develop it. So eventually, there was you know, the ground was sold, but Merton Council weren't interested in finding Wimbledon a home. So eventually the idea was is that they'd find somewhere eventually. And they went and ground shared with Crystal Palace. The thing is, the actual distances involved aren't huge, but it, it's a psychological difference. It's not necessarily, you know, Chris, you can get there, but it's not the easiest. It may only be sort of, I suppose, what, five, ten miles, but it's the difference between southwest London and south-east London. In other words, if you were going from Wimbledon on the overground, you'd have to go two steps up to Clapham Junction and then effectively go all the way back round in a slightly different direction to get to Croydon. Then Croydon would have to take a bus or a walk from Selhurst Station to get to the ground. That's not easy to do on, on a Wednesday, wet Wednesday night in November. And so as a result, 
for years, Wimbledon had this ground share. Their attendances were quite low. Um, I think the lowest ever attendance for a Premier League game is 3,029. That was a midweek game between Wimbledon and Everton in the mid-90s. Generally, you know, the away attendances used to be huge. I remember Spurs once playing Wimbledon in 98, and it was a 25,000 sellout at Crystal at Selhurst Park, Crystal Palace's ground, where Wimbledon was sharing. And about... I say eighteen to twenty thousand of that attendance were Spurs fans who had bought tickets. So ten thousand were allocated away fans. The rest were just Tottenham fans who had bought up tickets. And so eventually, this issue couldn't last forever. When Wimbledon were relegated, they got bought out by new ownership, who decided they were going to move Wimbledon to Milton Keynes, which is just mild. Miles and miles out, completely outside of London, you know, two counties over. With Charlton, it's a sort of similar story in that they had they they had their ground, the Valley, and it used to be a really massive stadium in the sort forties of and fifties. They were able to get attendances of seventy five thousand people, and you know, Charlton had a few years in Division One. And the Valley was just their spiritual home. And eventually, you know, there were some ownership issues. And the owner decided, you know, the owner of the ground threw Charlton out. So they had to ground share. Again, at Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace is basically your go-to ground if you get chucked out of your stadium and you're vaguely in London. And for years and years and years, Charlton didn't have a home. You know, and they struggled. Yeah, whenever you go to a different ground, attendances will crater. The you know, the atmosphere around the club won't be particularly positive. And what was even probably more galling for them was that not only did you not have your home, is that the ground was still there. It was just basically rotting over. You know that the stands were you know being overtaken by weeds and by just nature. And there was always this sense that they they just if they could just get home the club would be back and would be able to, you know, be whole again. And so, again, like with Wimbledon, there was issues with the local council not being particularly interested in helping Charlton. And so what happened was is that the fans decided to form their own political party for local elections called the Valley Party. And they drummed up huge supports and they got thousands of votes in these kind of lo- local elections, council elections, that weren't ever particularly high turnout. And they eventually got councillors elected and really basically just told the local authorities and the local political elite, we will not go away until you take this seriously, until you get us back into the valley. We will be a thorn in your side. We will get your ca- you know, your council leaders will lose their seats and will therefore be chucked out of government. And the same thing with Wimbledon. Once you know they decided to move to Milton Keynes, the fans formed their own club, and the attitude was, we will not take this. We are not going to lose our football team, even if we have to create our own ones. And the great thing is, is that they both end with a happy ending. You know, after these decades of struggles, eventually Charlton were able to get back into the valley. But the thing is, this was a stadium that had been just disused for about 15, 20 years. And so what the fans did was simply rock up at the ground one day and start fixing it. You know, cutting down all the weeds, fixing the terracing, you know, 
all the rotting wood was removed and just effectively rebuilding on the fly this stadium so that they could get some people in and I've read about the day when they finally returned. I mean, the stadium was still relatively low capacity. They didn't have a huge amount of money to redevelop it. But 8,000 people in this stadium. Just the atmosphere, just how special and the emotion that came into it. Much in the same way that with Wimbledon. They finally... They spent a few AFC Wimbledon when they went up the divisions and finally got into the Football League. They were playing at um, Kingstonian's ground. Which is... A lot closer to Wimbledon. It's a couple of stops away on the overground. Then Croydon and Palace, which is, as we said, miles away. But there was still this desire, this need to get back to Merton, back to Wimbledon. And so they've uh, bought the Greyhound Stadium in Wimbledon, which is, I think, only literally maybe a couple of hundred yards away from where Plough Lane once stood and got redeveloped. And so they're now building this stadium. They're finally, in probably next season, maybe the season after, they're going to be back playing in Wimbledon for the first time since the late 80s. And even, so they were building this stadium. And then there was a whole emotional issue to do with, they were running up short. They were about a couple million pounds short. And there was really, the only way that they realistically felt that they, the club could get this money was to allow some private equity some people basically buy a little bit of AFC Wimbledon and in return they'll give you the money and you'll be able to finish the stadium fully but the fans were just completely up in arms the idea is we formed AFC Wimbledon so that nobody else can ever own this football club so that we can never have another situation where an owner sells the ground moves the club it is we you know, we will do anything so a couple of the fans decided just to form their own bond issue and managed to literally get that £2 million simply so that they could say, here's £2 million, you don't need the private equity, you don't need anybody owning this club. AFC Wimbledon will be owned by us and we will find the money, it doesn't matter how. I mean, that is just extraordinary lengths of both football clubs. And it, that just reveals the importance of football and home. I mean, the, the critical element is defining it. But the, the, the thing about the experiences of Charlton Wimbledon, and then obviously AFC Wimbledon, it was nothing about results on the pitch, or even really much to do about the sunny uplands of future success. Yes, Charlton did eventually get to the Premiership in the late 90s and had a good few years in the early 2000s in the Premier League. And yes, AFC Wimbledon, and being in their new stadium will help them, you know, tr hopefully stay in League One. But it was more the fact that it had a spiritual home. And that these fans would go to the ends of the earth to preserve that history. To say, we are Wimbledon, we play in Merton and in Wimbledon. We are Charlton, we play at the Valley. And the importance of... of having that in the future so not just for you not just to match up the history but for your sons your daughters for the next generation to be able to enjoy that you know it, it's not coincidental that the the best and most evocative descriptions of stadia almost describe it as a member of the family you know with its quirks its faults and effectively what makes it 
intrinsically lovable and special. You know, th there's no point in me giving an elegy to Underhill and White Hart Lane to tell you how wonderful it is. Just, you can do that, but all sports stadiums are special and important to the fans who convene there. But the, the deeper meaning comes from understanding that the role these grounds had in the history of the club, and also what it says to the future. Neither the White Hot Lane that I knew and the Underhill that I went to as a, as a, as a child growing up, neither of those grounds were particularly aesthetically beautiful or even photographed well, but they had a character and a collective coherence between the stands that accentuated not just the, the atmosphere, the game atmosphere on match day, but really what it meant to be a Barnet fan, what it meant to be a Spurs fan. You know, these grounds had long storied histories and were at the heart of their communities. And when they were at their best, they were a melting pot where class, race, generational gaps, they faded from consciousness. For a couple of hours. Because for Tottenham you had the struggle for relevance. You're battling Arsenal. You're battling Manchester United. Chelsea. You're trying to, to maintain being a top six club in this country. You, know, you need attractive football. And that's the same really for Barnet in, in its own way. It needed to play good football. To, make, you know, to keep... Interest to keep the, just the spirit of Barnet alive. I suppose the best way really to start with both grounds is to really to, I suppose, give you almost a, a guided tour. So we'll start with Underhill. Probably what a good idea to do, if you're listening to this, is to do a Google image search for Underhill Stadium, and it'll kind of give you a, a little bit of a an idea of, of what I'm talking about. So we'll start at the, the bottom of the stadium, the South Stand. Now, when I first started going to Barnet in the mid-90s, it was a temporary set of seats, about 950 seats, uh, green. And there was always the, the this kind of urban legend amongst the fans that at the end of the season, the South Stand would be dismantled and it would go to the British Open. So whenever I would see the British Open on TV and you see those temporary little stands that they put round the holes, I was always wondering, I was always sort of looking to see whether you know, the South Stand from Underhill was there at the 18th when, let's say, Tiger Woods was winning the, the British Open. And I suppose one of my favourite memories of the South Stand was is that there was basically, either, most of the time when I was going, it was for away fans. But if there wasn't that many away fans, they'd kind of let kids in, like kids for a quid, something like that. So it'd almost feel like most of your school year was, standing, was sitting in this stand and were just enjoying singing. And you usually, as kids, trying to just you know, sneak in a few sweary chants before your parents kind of you know, would give you a clip round the ear. And the, the other time was basically we were playing Lincoln. And um, the thing about Underhill was one of these old school grounds where there was a six foot slope from north to south. And so Lincoln were attacking up the slope and scored. But basically the way the angle of it, angle, just 
it, I suppose it was almost like an optical illusion. The, the Lincoln fans didn't realise for the first about three seconds after Lincoln had scored at the North End that they had scored. And so it was just weird. You were just staring at these sort of 900 people just sans in it and you almost sh- wanted to sort of shout at them, you've scored, idiots. And then when they realised, it was just this delayed pause moment and then they all started going absolutely mental. So you've got the south stand and in, in the south um, west corner of the ground you had this, um, you know, the social club and the, the boardroom and, and as a result that kind of puts a little bit of a gap because you have the, the family stand. What the, When Barnett got promoted into the Football League the, the stadium was a little bit ramshackle so what they did they had this little bit of terrace thing and they bolted 237 seats on it and put a little sort of tin roof on it. But luckily, the social club meant that at no point were the away fans really that close to the, the family stand. So the kids were never having to deal with, you know, drunk away fans giving them grief. And then you had the, the main stand that was uh, 788 seats. And it was kind of... It was built in the, the 60s, and it had this wonderful quality to it that, effectively, it was almost as if it was on stilts. So you had this 788, and you had to sort of walk up about... I think maybe eight, nine, ten steps, and then below it you, you had the you had the tannoy announcer, and you had the um, and the confectionery sort of stall, and it kind of just gave you that sense of importance that you had to kind of walk up these steps, and you were kind of just above the fray a little bit, and it was kind of took about the took up up about a third of the the length of the pitch. And then next to it you had the Northwest Terrace and it was it almost had this feel being a little bit like a, a sort of viewing platform, your own sort of private viewing platform. And then you had the, the North Terrace, which is where I watched the vast majority of my Barnet games. And it was this kind of wedge of terracing that was probably at the shallowest point it was maybe two or three steps. And at its probably maximum, it might have gone out maybe three or four metres, maybe uh, three, four, five metres, and maybe, I reckon, ten or twelve steps. And so it was this sort of wedge of terracing, and you had the behind it some netting. And it was exactly the same netting that you would have at school, that would basically, you know, that would always surround the playground. And it always reminded me of school. And it backed onto these houses in the garden. So sometimes if your striker battered the ball over the bar, it would out of the stadium and you'd see it in the back garden. And you'd so, oh, there'd always be some smart ass at the back going, can we have our ball back, please? And you had a couple of the families that would watch the games. And there was this old couple and you'd just see them every single week from their front bedroom on the second floor, just watching the game. And it had this very sort of intimate feel I mean one of the things I used to love about the North Terrace is, is that no matter where you were in, in on it you could see the game you were never more than three or four metres away you could hear what the players were saying and the players could hear you so in the far corner you had the you know the drink stand and so literally you'd be sitting there you'd be ordering your like Diet Coke and a metre away, that you'd have your star player do, you know, chipping a corner in. 
or if you need to go to the toilets with the, the far end, you'd literally be walking past the goal. You'd be about um, maybe two metres away from the goal line. And your, your best luck is if you needed to go halfway through the game and then someone smashed in a ball from 30 yards and you literally had a perfect view. You were, on, you were literally standing behind the goalkeeper as it gets into the back of the net. So you haven't missed at the moment. Even if you went to the toilet, you could sort of put your head round the side and you still see the pitch. In other words, no matter where you were, you could still see the game. And so for me, the North Terrace was more like this, the debate school, the wags enclosure, where people would just make jokes and laughter. You know, you'd give banter to the players. Like whenever there was a miskick clearance from the goalkeeper, you had a guy at the back that would always shout, Who's injured? And I suppose one of the things that made that ground special was is that in the sort of far corner you had, just outside the stadium, you had the train bridge. So High Barnet Tube Station, which is the last stop on the Northern Line for the London Underground, it's, yeah, it's High Barnet. And to get to the station, you'd go over a bridge. And what would happen is is that whenever Barnet had a corner, you would see the, the Northern Line train stop as if there was a red signal. And unless there was just some major coincidence that virtually every single time Barnet had a corner, when they were attacking the North Terrace, the train would stop and would only then make the rest of the you know like 350-metre journey into the station after the corner and I've always you know maybe there was a red light but I just don't believe that I honestly believe that the actual train drivers were like yeah, maybe I'll sneakily watch a corner maybe I'll see a goal just you know as the, the most natural thing in the world it's like when you walk past you, when you're in a park and you see an 11 a side game you know even if it is literally a park 11 a side game you always just ponder and pause for just for a second just in case you can see a goal even if you don't know the teams even if it's completely amateur Sunday morning everyone's hungover you still pause just for a second just in case you see a goal and then you're kind of moving on to the the east terrace which you know had a roof had a little camera gantry that was eventually put in and that was really where the atmosphere was it's where you had the, the flags, you had the balloons and the ticker tape, the drum. The ticker tape was always great because um they would always it was always usually at the sort of one of the first games of the season or the last game of the season. And if you were in the East Terrace at that point, in the sort of the middle bit where you had the kind of best view of the overarching best you know, of the pitch and the stadium, is that you just people would come in with just huge dustbin bags full and they would just hand you the yellow pages. And so basically what that happened is all these people had got the you know, the phone directories, which was yellow pages, and was the pages were actually yellow themselves, yellow and black ink. And would just spend their mornings ripping it up, tearing it into shreds, and then bringing these bin bags into the stadium and just handing them out to people just minutes before the kickoff so that when the players came out, the players always came out to um, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. You'd throw up all of this ticker tape and I think it was it was just the extra effort that people made. It was just, you know, Barnet versus Hereford. It wasn't the end of the world, but it just made it that much more special. And the atmosphere, the singing, the and the fact that you were welcome. You know, because it didn't matter whether you'd been to you know 
three games a season or it's your once a year or whether you've just turned up because Barnet were doing well and were nearing the playoffs. You were welcome as long as you sat there and made some atmosphere and you cared and wanted the team to win. When when I look at White Hart Lane, the, the White Hart Lane that I went to, which was you know all seater, and what you had was you had the the Park Lane, so the South Stand, behind the goal, and about I suppose forty percent of it was away fans. So kind of the south west corner of the ground would be the away fans. Then you'd have the about five thousand Spurs fans, two tiers. In the park lane, and they were the, the passionate, you know, they were the people that made noise. And you, you would then have the east stand. And what you had was with the east stand, there was theoretically three tiers. Um, so you had the, the top tier, because it was a stand that was built in the mid 30s and retro and kind of done up in the, the early 90s. So you had the Top tier, you had the bottom tier, which used to be terracing, and you had this middle bit. It's called the shelf. It was, it's got a legendary reputation because apparently it was. My dad stood on the shelf a few times in the sort of sixties and seventies and eighties, and apparently it had this just perfect view of the pitch, and that's where a lot of the atmosphere and passion came. And so what you'd have is is that between the south stand and the east stand, there was this access tunnel where you basically would sort of lead, separated the south stand and the east stand, and it was effectively a way, if you needed to get ambulance onto the pitch, you, they'd have some gates. And you'd always, once in a while, see some couple of people, you could just about see the pitch from kind of street level. And you'd always see maybe two or three people just sort of peering in. And I've always wondered how much of the pitch you could see, but there was always two or three people, even if it was, you know... a rainy horrible day there'd be someone just capturing a glimpse of it and because you had that access tunnel it separated them but it also brought them together so you'd always have the south stand singing to the east stand the east stand was sing back to the south stand and the west stand was just the main bit where you'd have the you know where the directors and you kind of had that one section in the middle bit of the top tier and it was always black because everyone was there was wearing a suit. No one ever seemed to wear a cream suit, a blue suit. It just seemed to be black suits, white shirts. And it was usually quite quiet. But on occasions, if like if the referee made an awful decision or if there was a, you know, a really majorly important match, the, when the West Ham would erupt in rage, it would boost the rest of the stadium because you're like even the West End is making is singing and making some noise and getting into it. And then you had the the North Stand, the Paxton Road End, which was the where my season ticket was with my dad and the rest of the family. And it, originally, when it was built in 1998-99, the idea was that it was going to be designated and called the Family Stand. And there was going to be you know, no swearing. It was going to be, you know, it was going to be nice. It was going to be something that was going to, it's going to be this new stand that you know people will be able to bring the family. And that got dropped, I think, within about two or three seasons. The idea was is that football crowds are just too rowdy for you to sit there and, and in a thirty-six thousand two hundred seat stadium give ten thousand seats to 
the idea of family. It didn't, didn't quite work. But really, the, the ultimate irony was is that everyone was somehow family in that stand, especially in the top tier where I was sitting. Everyone knew everyone somehow. It had almost a mafia family feel to it. You'd always, you, whenever you were in the concourse, whether you were getting a pre-match drink or using the toilets at half-time, you would just have this huge gathering of people and everyone would recognise or know somebody. It was almost you know, 5,000 people doing six degrees of separation. You would always see people that you went to school with, people that you saw down the pub. It just had that feel to it. And I, even to this day, I can remember everything about the Paxton Upper. It was Block 36, Row 13, Seat 201. You know, at Underhill would be North Terrace, and it would just be maybe, I would reckon, two metres you know, past the goal. And it would be about maybe, I reckon, where I used to stand would be about eight step, steps up. Two from the back where the... Or you could hang up your coats on the on the netting and it would just give you the perfect view of the the goal so the next the actual goal net itself didn't get in the way. And so I think the, the key point is that all parts of both of those stadiums had their own individual personalities but could unite as one to make it a cauldron of noise and emotion. For Spurs, that was, you know, Derby. So when you're playing West Ham, when you're playing Arsenal, when you're playing Chelsea, European nights, you know, especially when we were in the Champions League. And for Barnett, you, it was more night games. You know, whenever I, if you ask me to close my eyes and think about Underhill Stadium, it is late 90s, it's autumn, and the first half starts in bright sunshine. You know, and um, Barnett attacking the south goal. And then it, by about sort of just after half time, it starts getting dark. And by the time the game ends, it, you know, the floodlights are on in sort of, you know, pure winter darkness. And Barnett are going up the hill in the second half. And there's always someone, whenever it would be discussed, there'd always be an old timer somewhere around who'd always say, historically, Barnett preferred going up the hill. And I don't have any evidence to, to be able to prove to you whether it was just some kind of tradition, but it always felt like whenever Barnett won the toss, they'd always be attacking the you know the north end, running up the slope in the second half, which seemed almost counterintuitive, surely when you were tired in the second half going down the hill. But apparently that was how it did. And in my mind now, that's what Barnett are always doing. They're always attacking the north end, north terrace, coming towards us. In the second half. And with White Hart Lane, what you had is, is the White Hart Lane was a stadium of its heroes. The element of maverick talent that contemporaries or other clubs and countries were unable to utilise or appreciate. You know, Jimmy Greaves not really succeeding in Milan and then having to come home to you know, play for Spurs. You know, Glenn Hoddle with England, David Ginola with France, you know, with the national team, the mistake he made against Bulgaria that knocked them out of the 1994 World Cup. They didn't even qualify. 
you know, Raphael van der Vaart, all of these, even some players like um, Timothy Atuba, who was the just most skillful left-back I have ever seen. He just seemed to have these tricks that were just something else. I mean, he was a big guy. You know, he was sort of 6'2", 6'3", you know, very beefy. And yet he would have these sort of twinkle toes. He'd, and he'd just bamboozle some players. But he would always be on the sort of edge of his own box. And your heart would be in your mouth. You'd think, if you make one mistake with this drag back and, you know, drag back and Cruyff turn, you, you, the striker's going to be thrown on goal. And yet he, really, he never made that mistake. It was just fantastic. And someone like Stefan Dalmar, who um, came on loan in the early 2000s when Spurs were... Still mired in mid-table, they would. There was always that threat that they had a bad year. That, that this could be the year they get sucked into the relegation battle, and he'd had success for Inter Milan. And he was a classic example of a winger that wanted to be a centre mid, and he just had this dribbling ability. Yeah, you know, he kind of had a low centre of gravity, and he was just a complete maverick. And he'd do three or four players, and he was on a completely different wavelength to. Everybody else on the team. So, what White Hart Lane was as a as a ground was effectively the crowd gave the players the license and encouragement to express their talent to its natural peak, and the players loved that. They, I think those those sort of players. Enjoy that, like Raphael van der Bart, loved that. And the point was is that he was loved at White Hart Lane for what he did, not what he lacked. Yes, he didn't. It wasn't the most consistent player in the world. No, he didn't really have the fitness to last ninety minutes, especially not in the Premier League. But we appreciated the craft and the talent and the flicks, the tricks, the the, the finishes, and just the the execution of everything that that he did. The point is, is that you go to Man United like Berbatov did, and for Gareth Bale when he went to Real Madrid, it's a win at all cost place. It's a what have you done for me lately place. Neither of those players ever quite expressed themselves, or and I've always thought this enjoyed themselves as much. Yet they won things, and yes, they got more money and more fame. But they never quite were able to use their talent in the same way. You know, Berbatov scored lots of goals for Manchester United and he did pretty well. But he was never quite as good. Because really, at Spurs, he wasn't, he wasn't playing in the greatest team of all time. But he could just be himself. He could be peak Berbatov. He could do all of the skills. I mean, what, he's probably one of the things that I most loved about watching Dimitar Berbatov would be his touch. In other words, you'd have a situation where someone would sort of launch a 30, 40-yard ball. And it was kind of more of a hit and hope than some kind of cultured, you know, through ball. And you think, he's got no chance of getting to this. And he would just sort of lift out a leg and it would just cushion onto it. And it, would, it wouldn't even be anywhere near the penalty box. It wouldn't be anything that would ever lead to a goal. It was just, wow. Michael Dawson has launched this ball as a clearance and you've just plucked it out of the air as if you, you know, a feather. It was just unbelievable. 
And the fact is, it didn't look like he had put any effort, as if he had just casually just lifted his leg out. It, it was utterly incredible. But there was a dark side to, to both of these grounds. If you wanted to succeed at Whitehall, if you want to be loved by the crowd, you had to have creativity and imagination. You had to be able to, to do things that other players couldn't do. Or if you didn't have that talent, you had to have the personality and the heart and the ability to understand what Spurs stood for. Like, Stefan Freund was not a brilliant player. You know, what he was was a solid defensive midfielder. You know, he won Euro 96 with the German national team. You know, he had success at Dortmund. He was just a plug-and-play defensive midfielder. You know, didn't score for Spurs. He only ever scored, I think... A penalty in a friendly, and I think one goal against Stevenage from open play, again in a friendly. But he got what Tottenham were about. He got the fans, and he played with his heart on his sleeve. He was committed. He had a sense of humour. And that's why he's ended up in the Spurs Hall of Fame, despite the fact that the, the Spurs teams he played for, apart from winning the League Cup, were mo seemingly, you know, in the British Constitution that Spurs had to finish 11th. That was just, it seemed to be a rule. No matter what we did, no matter who you bought, no matter who you sacked the manager, no matter ha what happened, you seemed to finish 11th every single year. So Wild was a miserable place for some players. Uh, yeah, like uh, Gregor Raziak. He played really well for Southampton. You know, he'd come out of nowhere. He was a Polish striker tall. He had a quite a nice touch. And I remember seeing him play in the championship for Southampton, thinking that he was really... You know, Decent, interesting player, scores 15, 16 goals, linked up the play well. And I was quite happy when we signed him for about three, four million pounds as a backup. And yet when he rocked up to the ground, I think the Premier League was maybe one step above his maybe natural talent level. But he didn't have much of a touch. He didn't have, you know, he was just looked awkward and didn't really fit into the style of play that Tottenham were using at that time. And just the fans just did not take to him. He, he only made maybe sort of three, four, five appearances, but that was just more than enough for Spurs fans. It was almost as if literally within you know, his first couple of bad touches, first couple of awkward flick-ons that didn't go anywhere, Tottenham fans decided, you are not a Spurs player, and the sooner that you can leave and go somewhere else, the better for all concerned. I mean, even the people that weren't particularly successful strikers, um, you know, Vincent Janssen, you know, Vinnie Bag of Donuts. At least there was some element of a decent link-up play that generally would show more away from home. But people understood that he was trying and he was running. And it's a bit like Helder Postiga. You know, we signed him for £6 million from Porto. And we wanted him to be the next big thing that was going to fire us to the next level. And it didn't work. He, he always had this horrible ability to be put through on goal and to miss. And it was always in big games. It was like there's one chance we had of winning at Highbury. I think we may have either we drew one or, or lost 2-1. And he was put clean through twice. And both times the keeper saved. And he didn't. I don't think he even got shots off. And if he'd scored those two goals and won at Highbury, he would have been a Tottenham legend. I think his Tottenham career would have been completely different. But in the end, he wasn't completely unsuited 
to English football. He was slow, he was a bit lightweight, wasn't overtly skillful, but he was encouraged. And when he finally got that first goal, it was kind of a scuffed finish against Liverpool at home. Everyone went mental because we were just so happy for him that he got a goal. And eventually we knew that it wasn't going to turn he wasn't going to turn it round, but just that we had this one moment and luckily we won, we beat Liverpool. So there was he's always gonna have that memory. And even someone like, you know, Roberto Soldado, Bobby Sol. He was well liked because you saw his link up play and he at least gave hints to his pedigree. But if you like if you want to understand people who weren't considered Spurs players, I suppose the best one is to compare and contrast Darren Bent with Roman Pavlyuchenko. No similar price tags. Bent was 16.5. I think Pavlyuchenko was about 13.3. And overlapping eras. Yeah, Pav had this capacity for the spectacular. You know, some of it, if you watch a sort of a highlight reel of his Spurs goals, they're all pretty good finishes. Bits of skill, smashing it in off the bar. You know, a couple of turns, a few dribbles, and sort of pinging it into the top corner. Whereby if you watch the same goal highlights for Darren Bent's Spurs career, they were always scuffed finishes, you know, sort of quite ugly. You know, he was only ever really scored decent goals away from home when he was on the break. I think his best game for Spurs was away at Man City. He scored a couple of really nice on where basically we'd finally just played to his strengths and just put balls over the top and he was able to run onto them. You know, so Bent was more about prosaic efficiency. And it was never as appreciated by the crowd. Even though eventually after he left Spurs, he had far more success in the Premier League. So 19, 20 goals for like Sunderland and Villa. But, but Pav is more, I think, more loved. Because you could just, you could always remember a Pav goal. I think my favourite one was, um, he scored a couple of late goals against Birmingham. Relegated them in the final game of the season. And for the whole of the second half, I think Birmingham were either leading or drawing, and that was enough for them to survive. Ben Foster was wasting time on an absolutely epic scale. And finally, when you know, Pav's got these late couple of goals, smashed it in, and it was the knowledge that now Birmingham definitely had to score to stay up, and suddenly Ben Foster was running around like an absolute lunatic trying to get the ball back in play, and just the... The jip that he got from the Paxton Road end, because finally now he was going down, and now he wasn't wasting time. That was probably, especially it was the last game of the season. Nothing much was riding on it yeah, for Spurs, but the fact that we'd, you know, and people don't like Ben Foster because I think you'd like him if you know him. I think he's a really nice person, but as a player, he's just incredibly annoying in terms of the time wasting and other bits and pieces. And so just to have that kind of little bit of revenge. And I think the interesting story, someone that you can sort of talk to about this would be, in terms of Spurs crowds and the reactions, was Chris Armstrong. I think he's one of these players that has just almost dropped off the face of the earth. In the sense that he scored lots of goals. I mean, if you actually compare his Tottenham career to Gareth Bale's Tottenham career, they're actually identical. They've played about the same amount of games, won the... You know, and Chris Armstrong can always say that he actually won a trophy for Spurs, whereby Gareth Bale didn't. I mean, there's some differences. Is obviously Bale started as a left back and converted into a winger, and then eventually sort of forward player. Well, Armstrong was always a striker, but you know Armstrong had one England call up in '99 when he had a hit, hit a decent run of form, but never made an appearance, which I think is a bit unfortunate. Probably the wrong era in the sense that 
that was the same era of Alan Shearer, Michael Owen, Les Ferdinand, Robbie Fowler. That was a time when England had a large seam of very good strikers. And while Bakrish Armstrong had pace, power, he was a tall guy, maybe 6'1", 6'2", and he did score some fantastic goals, even for, you know, for Palace and also for Spurs to a lesser extent. But it was an interesting one in that whereby you, your genius player, your Van der Vaart, really loved the sense of, here, I can do what I want and the crowd will get it. You know, Ginola did that, Van der Vaart. I think Chris Armstrong saw demands of the crowd more as a burden than as an opportunity. And he had a real sort of, all, at one point in time, a really awkward relationship with Spurs fans. He went on this great scoring run in 99-2000. But he stopped celebrating goals because his attitude was, fans have been on, on my back for an extended period of time. Why should I celebrate now that you're cheering for me? And I've always, I think now looking back on it, there's an element maybe of, of race involved in that involved in that he had this partnership with Stefan Everson and they scored about the same amount of goals, similar sort of players. And I don't think Stefan Everson ever quite got the same level of grief that Chris Armstrong ever did. But I I I, I don't think that that's something that I could definitely say. I think there's something there's an element I think to it that that I admire what Chris Armstrong was basically, the point he was trying to make, and that I think the more that that irritated the crowd, that's where I think some, some of the issues really allied. And I think that the point is just that he replaced an idol in Jurgen Klinsmann. He was a big money signing. He was 4.5 million, and he was a Tottenham record signing at the time, but he wasn't an England international. He wasn't particularly well-known. He'd scored goals for relegated Crystal Palace. He was signed the same summer as Burkamp was for Arsenal. And Burkamp was much more well-known. Played for Inter Milan. Played for the Dutch team at the World Cup. who got through to the sort of quarters. I think there was a sense that frustration over Spurs is failures and malaise with these sort of periodic bouts of protest against Sugar and to a lesser extent to, to Enoch and th those protests were ineffective they didn't do what they wanted and so it would, that frustration would coalesce on the player as the the visual representation of that you know, Ramon Vega who was technically quite a talented player but was just so accident prone if you were in the East Stand in the late 90s watching Spurs the East Stand used to basically coax him through the games. Man on, Ramon. Get rid, Ramon. Mark up, Ramon. You just couldn't leave him alone for two minutes or else something bad would happen. You know, you had um, Gary Doherty. And Gary Doherty is a very sad case. That, you know, he was signed for a million pounds from Luton. A young player could play both centre-half and centre-forward, an Irish player. And he was quite a big, lumbering guy, but... His first maybe year or 18 months at Spurs, he was doing really well. He scored a load of massively important goals when Spurs you know, went all the way to the semi-finals in 2001 in the FA Cup. And he had this horrible injury. I will always remember the date. It was a 5th of September 2001, and it was a game against Torquay. And he broke his leg horribly, and he was never quite the same player after that. And he did well for Ireland, scored a few goals, but he was always a lot more lumbering. If you see... Pre-injury Gary Doherty and post, 
they were different players. You know, even like Anthony Gardner and Milenko Simovic, their mistakes were usually clumsy or embarrassing. And it was set against a backdrop of you know, unpopular managers. You had uh, Christian Gross, George Graham, who Spurs fans never quite fully accepted. Even David Pleat when he was the interim manager. Because you were constantly compared to Wenger's Arsenal, which was always far more sleek, far more famous, far just better, better run. And I suppose now it's a lot more easier for Spurs fans to be magnanimous about, you know, the Soldados, who Janssen's knowing that you're finishing in the top six then some of the sort of lost years of the, the 90s mediocrity where it seemed it felt like Davijina was the last link to the freewheeling spurs of yore and the thing is it, what was so frustrating was it wasn't so much a, a lack of talent because you had players like you know Sol Campbell Darren Anderson Les Ferdinand Jochen Klinsmann Teddy Sheringham Stephen Carr when he was a fantastic right back for a few years before his major injury even Ian Walker played, you know, a few times for England. But it was just seemingly a lack of planning. And it always ensured that it was only ever in brief patches to Spurs show their potential. And it was usually in the Cups. Yet despite this kind of dark side of White Hot Lane, what it, when it was at its best, it had the ability, because it, had, it was a small pitch... It was a unified stadium. You know, basically you had the upper tier and the lower tier all kind of merged into one. It worked as an actual architectural in terms of creating atmosphere. It was close to the pitch. You had that collective desire of the fans for great football. And it acted as a springboard for less talented Spurs teams to outclass much better teams. Your two best examples of that would be the two 5-1 defeats inflicted on Chelsea and Arsenal in League Cup semi-final second legs. You know, the, the Chelsea game, this was a mid-table Spurs team. Both, actually, in both cases, they were mid-table Spurs teams going absolutely nowhere. In the first leg at Stamford Bridge, lost 2-1. And I went to that game and there was, you know, the second leg, and there was no expectation. There was a chance maybe we might win 1-0, 2-0. But if Chelsea scored, you know, an away goal, we were in trouble. And we absolutely tore them apart that evening. We won 5-1. It was just, it was cathartic. The fans went absolutely mental. But the thing is, it wasn't just that they'd won. It's that they had been on a, on a completely different, higher plane. You know, they had dominated and beaten them on a football basis. And it was the ability, and that was, you know, because you had the crowd, because you had the pitch. If and when you were in trouble at White Hot Lane as an away team, there was nowhere to hide. The pitch was small. You, the fans were on top of you. The atmosphere was always, it was very claustrophobic. And the, the point is, is that not only would they outrun you, because you had the crowd noise backing you, they were also playing great football. And that was it. You had the ability to collectively lift up an entire team to perform at its best. Not just one or two players. It wasn't just, oh, well, David had a good game. It was the left-back had a good game. The right-back had a good game. The whole team just upped itself 
for 90 minutes. And in those moments, it was almost as if the team was just unbeatable. Even the 5-1 against Arsenal. You know, we'd drawn the first leg, which I'd actually gone to at the Emirates, one all. And yeah, maybe it wasn't the strongest Arsenal team, but you still had Betna, you still had Adebayor, you know, you still had Fabregas. And again, this was a Spurs team that didn't go very far, but just on that evening, everything went. Just everyone played well. Everything worked. And this was Day Ramos era, when just virtually nothing else in his time at Spurs worked, apart from that semi-final and the final against Chelsea. I mean, even even the, the, the famous 4-all against Chelsea and the 4-all against Villa on our birthday, it was just the crowd stuck with them. And, you know, I remember the when we beat Chelsea 2-1, the first time we'd beaten Chelsea since the uh, late, early 90s. And it was this was a very good Chelsea team under Mourinho. It was that sheer nervous energy, because we'd gone 1-0 down. It was a classic Spurs kind of goal where... McAlealy from something like 30 yards spanked in it from just you just don't expect Lord McAlealy to do that and then this this comeback this sense that you know we Dawson got a goal then Aaron absolutely just destroyed Ashley Cole for 2-1 and then you just had this sort of hot, maybe 20 minutes which just felt like three hours and just the sheer nervous energy of the ground just seemingly helped us get over the line and there was, a, I guess, a dark side of Underhill as well. It was a very, it was a very strongly masculine environment, and an undercurrent, you know, with its sense of humour and the, I suppose, the potentiality for that rawness to come out during night games or when the team was struggling. Um, I always remember it when we had a manager called John Still, and. Uh, Either that, either John Steele teams were in the playoffs or they were 17th in the league. There didn't seem to be any middle ground. And at times when they were in the playoffs, they played some quite nice stuff. But when they, things didn't go well, it really didn't go well. It didn't work. And you, the crowd would just be like shout, just chanting over and over again, still out. Barnet crowds, if they didn't like the manager, just that was it. It would be just, it would be almost like a sort of mob mentality. And um, there's this very famous Barnet fan called Steve Percy, who I think from the 70s onwards, has I think he's missed three Barnet games. And was home and away, no matter what, he'd be there. There's this one game, it was a midweek game, it was raining, so I was in the, the East Terrace where there was actually a roof. And he basically, halfway through the second half, stormed round the pitch, around half the pitch, so he'd gone from the... Middle of the East Terrace, all the way around, you know. And the thing is, there was there was kind of gates that separated the stand, so you couldn't just sort of, kind of walk around willy-nilly. And, but whatever he said or did, just everyone left him well alone, so he walked all the way around the North Terrace, all the way around to the main stand where the dugouts were, and just stood behind the dugout and just unloaded. You could literally hear him from sort of 50, 60 metres away. He wanted John Still out that badly. It was just absolutely insane now that I think about it. But, you know, even with the North Terrace, you, you, opposition keepers would somehow end five to ten, would end up being five to ten yards out further out their goal than they normally would to avoid, you know, the North Terrace and the kind of the banter and 
I'll say abuse, but just the general, you know, but the thing is, you could see that player, you could hear them, and if you knew if you were getting reaction from them. You know, I think the best example of the North Terrace and its abilities as a, a, as a collective being was um, the ghost goal against Rotherham. And this is one of my favourite Barnet games, because basically I was at home, and it was, I think, quarters of three, maybe even ten to three, and I just thought, ah, oh, I fancy going to see Barnet today. Hadn't, hadn't planned on it, and my nan was there. And I literally just went down and said, like, nan, can you just drop me off at the ground on the way back home? And I did, rocked into the car and literally got to the ground, maybe 2.57, no queue, got into the ground. It was Barnet versus Rotherham. They were going for promotion, we were going for promotion. And um, it was kind of quite a big game. And it comes down to the last maybe 15 minutes, and Barnet get this just wonderful chance. It's a goal-mouth scramble, two yards, the ball's two yards off the line, and Mark Arbour, our centre-half, just needs to poke it in, slam it in, do what you need to do. And he get the ball gets stuck under his foot, and there's all these players. And I think the ball may have got within a yard of the goal line. That's as close as that ball went to going over the line. And simply the fans start just we just kept on celebrating as if the ball had gone into the net. And I think really because the ground was so tight and because you were so close and you had such a good view, I've always believed that the ref just assumed. That because we were celebrating it, that we knew something he didn't, and that we'd seen the ball cross the line when it hadn't. We were celebrating because Mark Arbour should have put that ball in the back of the net, but hadn't. And so the, the ref gives it. And I think if you ask some like Rotherham fans, hardcore Rotherham fans, they will even remember that because we and we, it was outrageous. Goal should never have stood in a million years. And the last 15 minutes of that game, they were all over us. You just, even coming into injury time, it's four minutes, and we were just expecting Rotherham to win. There was almost this sort of sense of disbelief when we actually finally, the ref blew for full time. We just couldn't believe we'd won that game. And really what Barnet is, it's a club that's both blessed and cursed. It's blessed in being able to have had George Best make a, a guest appearance. You know, Jimmy Greaves played for Barnet in the early 70s. Edgar Davids, Tony Cotty, and the last two of them were both player managers. You know, Yannick Balassi made some of, you know, and Albert Adama. So Yannick Balassi, who's been a £30 million signing for Everton, played really well for Palace. Um, Albert Adama, who's played for Villa. And we had both of those players on the wing in the early 2010s. Both of them have now been Premier League players, both at, you know, played at international level. Yet we still managed to only finish 16th in that in that league the, that year. But you're having to compete with Spurs, Arsenal and Watford, all within a sort of 10-mile radius. You, you've got a local council that was you know, antithetical to the local club. And despite the fact that Barnet had been playing since 1888, you know, and has been playing under since 1907, the, the Tory council, the Conservative council, didn't want Barnet there. I mean, it, it sort of blows my mind that you could... And it's not as if the club had done anything. It hadn't it ruined anyone's lives. It, didn't, it, it, was a pl- it was a plus to the local area. And I remember one of the councillors, Brian Coleman, who's just basically a bit of a clown of, of a human being, and a politician celebrated when Barnet had to leave the area. Yeah, you know, they've moved stadiums now from Underhill to the Hive, which is 
effectively basically the next council along. So it's out of the local area. So Barnet no longer play in Barnet. Not the, not the place, and not even the local borough. You know, and even at league level, they're competing against larger towns and cities. You, know, you have the, the difficulties of you know, wages, the London cost of living. So as a result, there's always this need for Barnet to play attractive football. It's a prerequisite for the club's survival. You know, to attract fans, to generate an, a culture, you know, so that it means that you have that passion, that you keep coming back week after week, you know, to give some element of hope, to even maintain your football league status or, or to regain it. You know, and the club's had some moments in its recent history. There was um, a famous game a few years ago where Barnet drew Manchester United in the uh, League Cup. They brought several thousand fans. This was a midweek game in, I think it was maybe September, October. And they went all the way up to, to Manchester, thousands of fans, away fans. And um, within 80 seconds, Barnet were down to 10 men. So a long ball goes over the top. The goalkeeper runs out to take a regulation catch. There was no Manchester United players anywhere near him. But he was so, I suppose, amped up is that he didn't wait for the ball to go into the penalty area. So he literally caught the ball about a yard outside of his box. And it's then this sort of horrible moment where he's realised that he's now handled it, just completely blatantly drops the ball, waits, and then sort of collects it back into the penalty area. And the ref gives him a straight red. So in 80 seconds, one of the best moments of Ross Flitney's career has just dissipated. He's now been sent off after 80 seconds, quick as ever sending off at Old Trafford. And as a result, they have to bring on the sub-goalkeeper, which means that one of the outfield players, who's been waiting for weeks for the moment to be at Old Trafford, and then he has to be subbed off. I mean, it was Luis Suarez. Suarez hadn't even touched the ball. So after 80 seconds, he knows. He'll be able to say, I played at Old Trafford for 80 seconds. And even in the 18-19 FA Cup, they beat Sheffield United. Yeah, that's the Sheffield United that's now sixth in the league with a lot of the same players. You know, they drew three all with Brentford. And the best thing about that Man United Barnet game was is that they, they lost four one. But the one goal was from uh, Scott Sinclair, who was a um, lonely player, who now plays up in Celtic, played for you know, Swansea, had quite a bit of success. And uh, he got the goal from a uh, Gerard Piquet mistake. And yeah, that is the Gerald Piquet that was <laughs> plays for uh, Barcelona and is now a you know, Spanish footballing hero. Which really leads us on to, I suppose, close to the, the conclusion of this podcast. One of my favourite Red Dwarf episodes, it's a um, sci-fi, British sci-fi TV show from the sort of late 80s, early 90s. And there's an episode called The um, Inquisitor. And effectively, it's a, a being that just travels through time and when it finds you, it will basically ask you to justify yourself. And I suppose in the environment we're in now with COVID, with all the, the, the fear that we have for you know how the English lower leagues will survive, it asks the question, can Barnet FC justify themselves? Now my, I'm from Barnet, I'm a you know, lapsed Barnet fan, I haven't been for a few years, and I, I think as soon as I'm able to, I will go back again. It's that 
part of the way how they managed to get into the league was um, they had an owner who effectively arrived in the mid-80s when Barnet were close to going out of business. They, they had an 80 grand's worth of debt, which in the early 80s, mid-80s, was more than enough for a small club that had never been in the football league. And he was Stan Flashman. He was king of the West End ticket towns. And so he threw some money into the club, and it was an element of bankrolling. I think the famous example was he put champagne in the boardroom, and the players were all in Yves Saint Laurent blazers. And so he kind of saved the club and put some money into it, which managed to, you know, with the inspirational manager, management of Barry Fry. And Barry Fry's passion for Barnet knew no end. He became manager in the late, 80, late 70s. And he took out a second mortgage once to keep the club going. Even once he couldn't sleep and he woke up all the neighbours around the Underhill area by mowing the pitch the night before a game by moonlight. He managed to get Barnet promoted in 1991 and kind of, you know, his wheeler dealer kind of lower league manager style brought in about sort of two million pounds in transfers. But the thing is, is that as the writer Simon Inglis puts it, the, the Flashman era. Yeah, he saved the club, but then nearly bankrupted it. By the time he left, they were hundreds of thousand pounds in debt. They had, you know, the inland revenue were chasing them, the league were chasing them for money, tax, everything. The club was just, just in a complete state. The stadium was in a bit of a state as well. But this was just as a moment that the Barry Fry team had managed to get themselves promoted, not just into the football league, but into you know, at the time Division Two, which is now League One. One of the things about when Barnet first broke into the is they had all these young talented players and they were just completely freewheeling. Their first game in the football league, they beat Crew seven four. In one of I think their second or third game, they drew five all with Brentford. They were just an amazing team. They would just go forward completely with reckless abandon. And eventually, obviously, Barry Fry left when the money ran out. And they, yeah, their one season in League One, Division Two, they had no money, no players. All the players had gone, and they got relegated very quickly. And the thing is, with Barry Fry, he eventually ended up going to Birmingham. And part of the when Birmingham sort of renaissance began with him, he got them promoted into yeah you know, the Championship. They won the Auto Windscreens Trophy at Wembley, which was a big deal. That meant yeah thirty. 30,000, Birmingham fans going down to Wembley to see them win something. Now he then ended up at Peterborough, and now you know, he's kind of been director of football, and he's produced a huge sort of cavalcade of young talent that's gone through. You know, you know, with, you know, even the stadium itself, it's played a huge role in the women's game. It's hosted women's FA Cups. It's hosted women's League Cup finals. You know, the Barnet women's team has a proud history. You know, players like Rachel Yankee that ended up playing for Arsenal and playing for the England national team got their break at Barnet women's team years before this was done by all the other clubs. You know, there was and there wasn't that there wasn't any money in it, but Barnet had that commitment to it, and they've now given Rachel Yankee a chance as manager. You know, the the owner that took over from Stan Flashman when Barnet were on the brink, Tony Cleanthos, has spent years working, you know, with the FA. He's got quite a fairly senior role. Trying to make the game better, you know, he's poured his own money, he's damaged his own health, you know, through stress, you know, having to deal with, you know, the exile to Edgware and Stamble, battling with the council to try and get Barnet a new stadium, 
The classic example was is that there was a um, athletic stadium called uh, Cocktail, just maybe two three miles away from Underhill, kind of perfect you know venue that could be redeveloped into a football stadium for Barnet. The council, the Tory council, were like, no, that's just non-starter. It's on the green belt planning and all the rest of it, and eventually Cocktail Stadium got redeveloped into a home ground for the rugby team Saracens. And the point is is that the sort of Tory hierarchy in Barnet were big rugby fans and like the our local MP used to go to the one of the restaurants and would get drunk on a Saturday night and just sing rugby songs very loudly, very rudely. And that was the thing. In other words, they were quite happy because they could then get you know, rugby tickets and it's a much more kind of upper class kind of um fan base rather than sort of lower league football and it's just it's just a tragedy that they got chucked out. You know, you had you know Barnet had their own kind of um, you know sort of political entity, keep Barnet alive, who just desperately tried to battle to get the council, you know, to 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 listen to us and put, to just give us some land in within Barnet, you know, within the London borough of Barnet, so they could play at home. It didn't have to be under who didn't even have to be in the centre of Barnet, just somewhere, and they just weren't interested. I think the only thing that I, I really love about the, the new stadium is that even though you've left Underhill, it's been knocked down, it's now a school, and it's very sad. Every single time I go past it that on that bridge and see that school where the stadium should be, it always just makes me feel you know, very wistful. Is that even this new stadium that's in Edgeware Stanmore, a little bit you know, next kind of county along, is even so... There's still a train, a tube line that goes past the stadium where you can see into it. And once, and I, I guarantee you, as I was going to Stanmore to see one of my friends, and the train stopped while Barnet were playing, and it was literally as Barnet were taking a corner, and it was as if it just it was something magical about the sense that even though they're not in Barnet, there's still a tube line. Even if it, okay, it's the Jubilee line, not the Northern line, but you can still pause just to let Barnet take a corner. That was just. It meant a lot to me. And, you know, even if maybe when Barnet first won promotion, there was the sense that, you know, obviously you know, Stan Flashman was a bit of a dodgy character. But since then, they've won the, the conference twice more after being devastating relegations without spending you know, huge amounts of money. And for me... Barnet is going to watch Barnet at Underhill. There was always the element of music. So the fans would always sing Twist and Shout by the Beatles, especially when Barnet were playing well and were just about to win a game. And, you know, the whole of the East Terrace, so maybe a thousand people would be singing, and you know, even most of the rest of the ground would usually come in, you know, somewhere close to the, the chorus. And then it was kind of fade into the, um, you know, the final bits of Hey Jude. You know, even even you know have moments when Barnet were winning where you know the um, you'd have the um, sort of um, back and forth from Minnie the Moocher, which is I think the most famous example is when Cab Calloway sings it with the crowd just before the Blues Brothers come on in the Blues Brothers movie, and it's that passion, you know, when you were a Barnet fan in the late nineties, your dream was to get to the Wembley final, the playoffs. Yeah, it'd be great if you got promoted, if you won the division. That'd be fantastic, or finish second or third. But deep down inside, I think all Barnet fans really wanted was for us to get into the playoffs, win the semi-final, and have our day out in Wembley. 
because you know Barnet is only maybe 20 25 minutes maybe 20 minute drive to Wembley we all wanted that moment yeah where you know maybe 20,000 of us would have bombed into the old Wembley stadium and had our day on national television now we we had two semi-finals there uh, 97 98 against Colchester and 99-2000 against Peterborough and both times Barnet got battered and even even when we were in the conference we had one uh, semi-final where first leg we played in Shrewsbury and in the last seconds of injury time Simon Clister left back you know, just popped out of nowhere and slammed one in at the last minute and so the second leg away at Shrewsbury you know, a couple of thousand of us went up and we lost on penalties and it was just gutting it and it was such a long way back it was a Sunday afternoon as well and you knew you had school in the morning and just the devastation of being so close you know basically being one chance one save one goal away from the final which would have then given us a chance to get back into the the football league and over the years we've had you know we've beaten teams like Blackpool Swansea, Fulham, Cardiff, Hull, Bradford, Brighton. All of these teams became Premier League teams. Even when we were in the conference, when we had our local derby against Stevenage, we brought a thousand fans. Now, I just don't see that passion existing if Barnet were just a glorified you know, B team. And I think Barnet have, have justified themselves. So in conclusion, my maternal grandfather, who, who I never met, who died long before I was born, loved going to Barnet games with his best friend. And upon missing one game, at the um, beginning of the illness that would eventually take his life, the friend effectively just arrived at the house unannounced and was like, obviously something's wrong, he's missed the game. Just knowing it must have been serious. And they didn't go to the games or love the club because they had any concern about youth development or the state or the future of the, the English national football team. They went because they loved the game and they loved where they raised their families. And they had local pride. So when administrators simply view the lawyers here as an inefficiency, it demeans the sport and its meaning. You know, no B team full of kids would ever muster the passion and devotion that the great Barnet teams of the late 90s inspired in their fans. They were a mix of old pros, young players released from Premier League clubs, most who went on to successful, pride, proud lower league careers. Yeah, Barnet hasn't developed an England international but they've beaten many of a Premier League side on their way up the divisions. They are a staple. They are something that makes the game stronger and more interesting and more powerful. You know, Barnet FC existed long before World Cups and European Championships. And, and they deserve to continue existing on their own two feet. You know, in, a, in a competitive English Football League pyramid. Not as a glorified minor league team. In my view, the government ought to legislate to guarantee the future of the lower leagues, not limply lobby the Premier League. Yeah, the Premier League's interest is not in 
putting the money from you know the top six and the Premier League to help Barnet. It is just not in their interest. And it, it, you, you're not going to have an organisation react in that way, in such a competitive environment, which is what football is as an industry. There needs to be... You know, the leagues themselves need to enact salary caps. But the thing is, is that what you can do is you can have teams like you know, Salford and Fleetwood Towns where they have ambitious owners who have spent money to push these clubs up the league. And maybe you agree with it or disagree with it. I personally don't like it necessarily. But it, I can see there's benefits to it, that you have these teams that are trying to push up the standards from the bottom upwards. So yeah, you can have a situation where you have those type of teams. And then you can have the type of teams like Barnet. And my point being is that if you're going to let the Saudis into the you know, buying Newcastle or you know the Abramovich types you know with Chelsea, if you're gonna let them into the game, fine. Extract from them the funds that will will secure the lower leagues for a generation. Just say it. Say look, you can buy Newcastle, you can do your sports washing, however to go into it, you have to put in two hundred million pounds into the leagues, the lower league system. The point is, if you've got them, if they desperately, desperately want to get into the Premier League, then they'll pay the surcharge. They have the money. You know, be aggressive about it. If they decide to go somewhere else, fair enough. Then you have the advantage of not having Newcastle United used for sports wash. But if you do, you've secured the lower leagues for a generation. That that's a positive. That's a net benefit you know you can even have a board that allocates such funds on a justificatory basis you know i'm quite happy yeah i think young players need to be you know have their experience in the lower leagues and that's fine have a pool of those players and allow your clubs like barnet to be able to you know utilize them but then you know and you have money that is given to them to help them survive but then you can also allow the, your Fleetwoods, who won't get any of the money, your Salvads, who won't get any of the money, who don't need to play younger players. They can have all the veterans and go up the league as much as they want, and you can have Barnet with some money and some access to these young players, but as an independent entity. You know, personally, I would make the conference regional. Build rivalries, allow for more away fans, you know, better atmospheres and lower costs. You know, Make the Football League... That when you get there, not only are you in the football league, you're in a national division, and how special that would be. You know, I've always thought that, you know, with baseball, you know, they can learn a lesson from clubs like Barnet. Yeah, Barnet don't make a huge amount of money; they usually make a loss. Maybe in the wider scheme of things, in the wider picture, they are not massively vital, but that doesn't make them not special. So yeah. The thing is, you can get rid of all of these minor league franchises and divisions that you think are unprofitable, that you think aren't developing players, whose facilities aren't good enough. But the point is, is that, yeah, that's the bottom, it will benefit the bottom line, and maybe your developmental spreadsheets. But actually, there's something to be said for having more pro teams, more pro baseball players, and more fans in parks across the entire country. The underserved, the underserved bits of the country. Because it's more important to have those players and those teams and those experiences and that passion 
than it is to sit there and say we're 5% more saved on the bottom line. We're 5% better in developing baseball players. But it does, it harms baseball. Just as, in the same way as turning Barnet into a B team would damage football. And would damage the the very fabric, the very meaning of it. The memories that I have from going to all of these games as a kid and as a young adult is what made me so passionate about sports about and wanting to make a difference you know i would love it if somebody listening into this podcast decides that their second team is going to be barnet even if you just check the results on live score every saturday just to just see where they are in the table in the conference and just to keep an eye out and maybe hope that one day you'll see them, you know, in the playoff final or winning the conference again and going back to the football league. You know, for me, whenever I think of Barnet, it's the 99-2000 kit. It was just because Barnet play in um, black and amber and that's why their nickname is the, the Bees. And you can probably Google search it somewhere, Google image search it. And it was an amazing team. They played 3-4-3, three, three, which is my favourite attacking formation. They looked good. They, their sponsors that year were loaded, who were sort of a edgier version of um, FHM. And when you're a teenage boy, that was just the coolest thing, is that there was this national magazine that was sponsoring Barnet, this kind of small place that really is only on the map because of you know, playing in the football league where you have these magical stories, like when we lost at home to uh, Torquay, but just a couple minutes before the end of the game, over the Tannoy, an announcement that the uh, Torquay away fans bus had broken down in South Mims, and that that the gales of laughter, knowing that they were go they were going to be delayed. It's already a four or five hour trip, and it's going to be even longer because you don't have a bus. You know, or... When we were 3-0 down at half-time to Lincoln and came back and won 4-3 in the second half in the pouring rain. And maybe, just maybe, one day we'll, we'll see Barnet playing back in Barnet. Thank you for listening.